Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the Fifth Column Podcast. This is your weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it, and occasionally ourselves. I'm Camille Foster. I am rubbing, I'm rubbing my, my head, um, but I do fabulous things at Freethink. And even when I'm tired, even when I'm, I'm not quite fully there, I am better than most people at their peak. And that's because I'm an exceptional human and I'm, I'm delighted to be with you. I'm excited. I'm also uh, humble. In, in certain ways. You know, some people um, say I'm the most humble. And I'm delighted yeah. to be joined by Michael. Yeah. <laughs> He's not here. He's not here. Michael Moynihan is not his here. He had some sort of tooth removed from up. his head. Yeah. 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 There will, we will be posting photos online of Michael Moynihan's mm-hmm. swollen face, his disfigured visage um, at our earliest convenience. We're going to get someone to sneak over there. But Matt Welch is here because he did right. not have some sort of oral surgery. And Matt, I hope that you are feeling fine and doing well. There in I New put York it City. off. You know, I had a I had a uh, a card that I once used uh, for a uh, without uh, meaning to as a vaccination card to get into a Nets game thanks to a, uh, a Nets playoff game thanks to a fifth column listener. Um, mm-hmm. But it was the same same uh, size and shape as the Vax card. Um, it was the first time I was ever going to use it, and I'm like, oh, and it was like you know, Doctor Soul Haber was going to like extract a tooth, um, and I never I went there. So I have like two teeth that have been rotting in my in my jaw for the last two and a half years. Uh, throughout COVID, and I haven't taken them out. Um, so, one uh, hand is a quitter. Is basically what I'm trying to say. Gross. That is absolutely disgusting. I'm delighted yep. to learn that about you. Um, yep. But we have a guest today, despite the fact that Mike Moynihan is not here, and I know many of you are rejoicing because of it. Um, yeah. But you'll rejoice even more when you discover that one of the most hated men on Twitter, <laughs> Robbie Suave, Ro- I'm going to Robbie Suave, like Rico Suave. <laughs> Uh, is joining us, Reason Magazine. He is a person who pontificates on a great many things. He's recently, or at least will be publishing a book on published, the baby. tech panic. Is it published already? Oh, it's out. It's out. You oh, can get it geez. right now. I'm going to Amazon right copy. now to purchase it. Yep. Robbie, thanks for joining us. Um, please talk amongst yourselves while, while I buy Robbie's new book. That's <laughs> the way to do it. <laughs> Robbie, what are you doing in Dallas? I am going to visit Glenn Beck Studios, hang with the Blaze people, so I'm excited to do that, and then I will be back in D.C. very shortly thereafter. So basically your book drops in end of September, and then Facebook goes offline. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of funny, actually. Did you do it? Is it like your fingerprints on this thing? The subtitle of the book is Why We Shouldn't Fear Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> because they can't, keep their, I, they can't keep their shit together. Right. What I was thinking when I came up with that or w- was, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm arguing why we shouldn't be so afraid of Facebook, but I, I didn't quite think that the main reason that was true was going to be that maybe Facebook just wouldn't exist. Um, <laughs> but, but since the, everything that happened last week and really that's happened over the last few weeks, uh, I've actually given more thought to that. Like Facebook is in a, is in a very sickly place. I suspect um, you think as, a, so? as a company. Yeah, they're things are not good. And it's not just because of this bad PR, really. Actually, a lot of and we can get into that. A lot of what I think has been alleged about them in The Wall Street Journal and by that whistleblower is ridiculous hyperbole. 
mm-hmm. but they're not attracting the kind of customers, the kind of users that they want. They want young people. That's what every you know company wants. That's what advertisers want you to have. That's what investors like to see. But Facebook is only popular with old people. It's boomer book. So, Robbie, you are, um, I don't want to say your age because I know you're vain, but um, you, you, you crossed <laughs> the 30 threshold, at least. Because Robbie yes. was the, Robbie's been working at Reason for a long time. He was an intern there back in yeah. the day back when I was editor-in-chief. I remember um, when he was still wearing diapers at Reason. He's very, <laughs> I remember that distinctly. He's no longer the youngest boy at Reason, mm-hmm. but uh, he's very, very handsome. Uh, but uh, <laughs> That's you not are, appropriate, editor-at-large. I'm at large. I'm not in chief. <laughs> I can do what I want. I'm at large. I mean, I can play. <laughs> uh, but did you, did you actually, and your darling wife, who's listening to this podcast, and shout out to her, um, did you ever really use Facebook yourself? I mean, you're a geek, you're a gamer, or whatever. Like, this, is it an accurate representation that your generation, and Camille's a little bit older than you, and I'm not, I'm like pretty old at this point. Um, and my people don't really even use that much, but like, what was, what was the history of your little mini generation using this in terms of the olds versus the youngs? Yep. We definitely used it. Uh, we, so when I first kind of got online and, and, and the internet became a place where I could have conversations with friends, et cetera, uh, it was AOL instant messenger. And then it was MySpace for a little bit. There was overlap there we're talking like the early aughts, um, through the mid-aughts to the late-aughts. Then Facebook comes along. It's more accessible. It, you know, it starts out as a thing for college students, but then quickly opens up to a lot of other people. And it just, it basically just out-competes MySpace to the point that, and, and now, and now MySpace occupies a place that I think it is not crazy that one day Facebook itself might occupy. Uh, I, obviously, it has, it's had staying power so far. It's a very powerful company, has a lot of resources, has a lot of users, and a lot of uh, it, it's doing a lot of interesting things in other parts of the world, but it, what it is not doing is getting young people to want to use it again. And that really does create problems for social media sites. And that's been going on for a while. I mean, I don't pay attention to this nearly a uh, fraction of what both you guys do. But when I was looking at this even two years ago, it was clear that Facebook and Twitter had kind of leveled off in the United States. And even in Western Europe, they're just sort of like, all right, um, we've kind of maxed here and they have to go hunting for audience elsewhere right at the time that everyone's starting to panic about like their incredible, devastating reach. I think part of the reason the panic is not very well-founded is that, like, I don't think we have to be that afraid of Facebook in the long term. Also, and then also the things that they're saying are just crazy. I mean, the, 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 so the whistleblower, I don't, she didn't even have any new information and like the red carpet gets rolled out for her she's testifying before congress this is 60 minutes right they have a big thing this past sunday they have a big thing she's the one who you know provided this information to the wall street journal yep. and you know some of these scoops were more interesting than others and the one that it seems to have caught people's attention the most or is being the most talked about is the harm to teenage girls using instagram what's being alleged is that they feel depressed after seeing you know the unrealistic uh images of pretty people on Instagram. They can be filtered, unrealistic body image stuff. Of course, none of that is new. No one had ever seen a a supermodel in a magazine until Instagram. Like they came along and they started airbrushing people in photos. And that has been devastating for young girls. Yeah. 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 And and what we're seeing, right. What we're seeing is that 
is is some small subset of the users of Instagram, right? It makes them feel sad. They don't have a good experience. Again, this is not really a problem that calls out for some kind of robust government solution. There's a very simple solution, like parents tell your kids to use like their phones less. Is, is that a? I mean, I'm not a parent, so maybe maybe the parents yeah, in here can like speak to how hard it is, but. <laughs> That's a practical, <laughs> practical guidance. It's maybe a little hard to give. I don't know. Um, I, don't, I don't know why it's different from anything else. So I could only play like an hour of video games when I was a kid. And if left to own my own devices, I would have played video games 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I but I wasn't allowed to. So I didn't. I mean, your principal so gaming device probably wasn't your cell phone, though, which I suspect for a lot of kids, that is entirely possible. A friend of the podcast and someone who's uh, friendly with both of you, in particular, Jonathan Haidt, is a big person who says that uh, I think he was even riffing off the uh, the the so-called whistleblowers stuff or at least something similar um, but he's been saying for a long time Instagram is really really bad on teenage girls like we can see the 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 the, the shape of the curve of the bad thing that happens to the girls and then starting in 2014 or 15 or something like that it just goes doop, goes it does the Al Gore hockey stick of the bad thing that happens to the teenage girls you guys are familiar with that study to some degree. Um, what, Robbie, what is your kind of uh, uh, sense of Height's take of that or your take of that? And Robbie, before, before you answer, maybe you can, can try to, to summarize that a little better to the extent Matt's summary. I, I thought is that was perfect. So competent and ill informed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, sure. Well, the reality is the research is kind of all over the place, right? You can find, and, and like none of this is, you, you, sure, in, in the survey uh, results that Facebook internally produced, you had some kind of small subset, like I don't know, two out of five or one out of five teenage girl users saying that, you know, their, their feelings of depression, anxiety, uh, what have you. Are, are originate on Instagram and are much worse because of Instagram. You know, you can find other survey results that show that as well. But you can you can also find survey results from kids who love social media, who are who are happier when they're on social media talking to their friends. Um, when you do comparisons, it seems like the young people who use social media to the most to level of addiction. Yes, they're having some problems. I suspect because they're not getting enough sleep and teens deprived of sleep have bad mental health outcomes. Also, the kids who don't have access to social media at all tend to be very depressed because they're like loners and, and losers who are socially disconnected. And it seems to me that there's plenty of kids in, in the middle who are not, they might be having a rough time because you know what, being a teenager is hard. High school is miserable. For, for probably the majority of, of of kids will say they're frequently miserable at high school. Would not surprise me if 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 the the high school is making me miserable um, results were like several orders of magnitude higher than the Instagram is making me miserable. But we're not like talking about abolishing school. Maybe we should. But I'm not saying I disagree with him. There are some findings to be wary of, and he's very cautious when he presents this. He he does not tend to make absurd or really out there claims. He's and I think Gene Twang, who's another psychologist who writes about this stuff has been a little less careful and maybe guilty of some cherry picking. I've read her book, iGen. But I suspect part of this is that he was right the first time when he said his last whole grand theory with Greg Lukianoff, mm -hmm. the coddling of the American mind, etc., was about how victim status now conveys this kind of power. Mm -hmm. And so there, there you have this 
kind of young progressive activist who is who is trying to portray themselves as traumatized and triggered and emotionally unwell because it conveys a kind of a kind of status in these circles. So I I would suspect some of the survey results showing, you know, people more fragile and more traumatized and more mentally unwell over time will part, partly just reflects a greater openness or willingness to talk about mental health issues to a degree that is good. And then also a little bit beyond that to a gr- degree that is excessive and mm-hmm. not actually correlating with real mental health. We, we actually haven't linked some great number of, of actual suicides or suicide attempts to Instagram. I'm, I'm sure they've happened, but we, we are not actually seeing like an Instagram linked epidemic of suicides and male teen male suicides are higher, have, have always been higher, have been higher for years. And then that's like always been the case. And no one's connecting that to Instagram. Right. It's funny. This is probably the second time in three episodes that we've devoted a, a fair amount of time to talking about tech. And one of the chief things about the hearings this week is just the uniformity of perspective amongst Democrats and Republicans with respect to their uh, skepticism of big tech, their desire to do something to rein it in, to introduce some sort of new regulation. There's kind of three categories of concern when it comes to tech. You've got the culture and you've got the political and then you've got the economic concerns. The economic concerns all pertain to antitrust and whether or not Facebook and Google and Apple are making it impossible for other people to compete and whether or not it's fair. And we can talk about that. There's the political implications, whether or not these companies are threatening democracy in a substantive way because of their activities or inactivities, because they're allowing misinformation to flourish. And I think related to that is the conversation around cultural stuff, which I think we're talking about a bit already with respect to young kids and whether or not they're being impacted negatively, but also just this broader idea that as a society, our interactions with Facebook are creating a great deal of cultural upheaval. I suspect that your book, having read the column that was published in Reason, um, surveying some of the material in your book, um, is inspired by that trifecta of concerns. Is, is there anything in particular that you think is worth being concerned about in those areas? Or is your book primarily about how tech is good and is going to change the world for the better, we don't need to worry about this at all. I would say I have plenty of concerns about social media. I think there are plenty of bad results that have followed from social media. I just think social media is obviously good on net, and then all the solutions that have been proposed are pretty bad. There are some issues where I, I t- towards the end of my book, later chapters after we get out of the way, so the, f- the flashiest stuff is the dumbest stuff or the stuff where there's really no solution or the government just can't do anything because the First Amendment prohibits it or it's mm-hmm. not a real problem. So I, I think the, the depression, anxiety stuff is, is pretty is, – is not a very significant problem. And I, I, I'm actually like most against the idea that this is even a problem. It strikes me as vintage moral panic. It's so similar to the idea that video games were producing violence that all turned out to be false, that kind of thing. Um, I, I think but we did let like, Two Live so, Crew get away with making all of their horrible music, and you see where that's that gotten true. us. I mean, that this is true. a real right. problem. If we did, if we had done yeah. something about "Oh Me So Horny" at the time, just imagine how much better off <laughs> America would be today. Time. The lies, we never had the lies Donald Trump. Saying, what well, yeah. you hear, you know, you hear, we heard all these comparisons to big tobacco, and I'm like. I'm sorry, cigarettes have killed millions of people. <laughs> you can't, there are not millions of, of bodies to lay at the feet of Mark Zuckerberg. 
The real problems are, are probably national security, organized violence on the platforms, some privacy issues. So there's some narrow categories of criminal behavior or violent behavior or like private information being leaked to sign thinking of uh, revenge porn or things like that, where I think there should probably be some kind of law to deal with this. But the flashiest stuff is the addiction, anxiety, and then, of course, political censorship. That's the thing that drives the right the most. The right is so we're being silenced by social media, by big tech, etc. And I have written about moderation decisions that the right did not like, that I think they were correct to complain about. The Hunter Mm -hmm. Biden story is a great Mm -hmm. example. That was a terrible move on Facebook and Twitter's part. It was so terrible that they actually immediately apologized for it and said it was a mistake. Mm -hmm. Um, So there are definitely bad things they have done to harm individual conservative speech uh, or pieces of content. But on the whole, social media has been such a wildly positive thing for the right and for contrarians and alternate perspective people and probably the far left, anyone who does not hold an opinion inside like the narrow range of what is what is acceptable to your your normal liberal mainstream media person, those people were very well served by the media environment we had prior to social media. They don't mm-hmm. like social media because social media has destroyed the stranglehold they had on on having conversations that they got to set the parameters for what was allowed to be said. You know, they being the newspapers, cable news channels, etc. Social media threw all that out the door, and now there's now all sorts of people can have successful conversations, can 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 create content, and this has been the greatest thing for the right in in, in terms of media developments. And, and I can I can prove it. You can look at Facebook on any given day, and you can look at the top ten pieces of content. Kevin Roos, a writer for the New York Times, who I often who I frequently disagree with, although he had a really mm-hmm. good column about this about the, the recent Facebook stuff, um, he aggregates like the top 10, he, or he shows you what the top 10 posts are. And invariably, it's stuff from Fox News, Dan Bongino, Breitbart, Ben Shapiro, uh, you know, all those, all the, the, the right-wing alternative media sites. They're killing it on Facebook. This yeah. is their greatest outreach tool ever. And they're, and they're trying to break it up or increase its liability. Like the things they're proposing would be shooting themselves in the foot. It would be like, it'd be taking a semi-automatic rifle and just like, my feet like it's so stupid um so that's a major theme of my book playing the victim is not stupid it plays very well in the midst of the culture war it seems to be like the principal thing that conservatives are doing these days is talking about how how beleaguered they are they they want to take on facebook because they're being mistreated there i've heard and I, i think i mentioned this before prominent conservatives in recent weeks talk about the possibility of pursuing some sort of legislation to protect conservatives on the job from discrimination. And of course, there is critical race theory, which is another place where folks who are most animated by this feel as though they are under attack from what they generally seem to describe as a broad conspiracy of well-defined ideas that are being promulgated by activists, and it exists in every single public school in America, and now they're being targeted by the FBI. But I'm teasing. So back to the tech stuff. It's clearly disruptive when you go from a circumstance where a particular elite has control of the, the narrative shaping organs of a society, and then all of these other people suddenly have an ability to project their voice as well, unchecked. It's disturbing to the establishment, 
but it also creates some genuine waves for the society more broadly as it's trying to find whatever the hell the new equilibrium is. It would have been unthinkable 15 odd years ago for a mainstream candidate for the presidency of the United States to be talking about equity in place of equality. That's a huge shift that seemed to take place over the course of like 13 odd months. And it's hard to imagine that happening both absent a pandemic, but also absent the mechanisms of social media and how easily a new language can be codified and disseminated. What do you personally make of that and how well we're navigating from the world we were in to the world where pretty much anybody can set up a a news network that has all the throughput of the biggest media players? Yeah, and that will be messy, allowing a lot more speech is messy because people say things that are wrong, that, that are maliciously wrong, that are vile, and it can be really bad. And we can see, you know, the ugliness of what of what people think. And a lot of these alternative media companies get things really wrong. But of course, the mainstream media also gets things really wrong, often in very devastating ways for indi- for the individuals. It you know it 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 cancels the you know think of the the. The, the, the girl from the New York Times story who, who, uh, who got kicked out of college because she was in the Snapchat video or some video using the N-word or the Covington kids or the Halloween, blackface Halloween costume. The, 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 the people the media has destroyed, um, I, I think, are, we're, are, we're better off with the, this alternative media environment where, where people can call out. There, there are platforms, there is space to actually criticize what the media is doing and it will not always be right. But like the pandemic has, I mean, they're the, the mainstream media didn't want you. They didn't, not only did they not want you to talk about, right. The lab leak theory, some other things, mm-hmm. you know, the, the government is in lockstep with them on this. And the government is trying to get social media companies to also fall in line to do by the government being the Biden administration, the current white house, the current administration, they, they, are pushing, they are encouraging, you know, air quotes around encouraging uh, social media sites to take down more content, to fall in lockstep. And that is really what worries me uh, because they're going to cave in a lot of cases because right now the, the companies have a lot of freedom. They've been very lightly regulated. Um, they, they have the, the Section 230 protection that's really good for the platforms. And they're worried the government is going to do something. And Republicans, instead of kind of standing on principle and saying, nope, no, we're going to, you know, we're going to, we, we're going to defend you for principled reasons. Also, truly Republicans could and should defend them just because this, the existence of these platforms, the way they are now is honestly on net better for Republicans, but be, they, they've succumbed to this need to be victims about everything. So that you have them agreeing with Democrats that, well, we, sh- we should do something now for opposite reasons, but there's such a consensus around breaking up the companies, taking away their protection, regulating them in some other way. I think Zuckerberg wants, he doesn't want it to be on him when a bad moderation decision is made, and he would almost rather it be, I think, I think ideologically, he is not inclined toward censorship, but he, he wishes, in the cases where they have to make some call that no one's going to like, I think he almost wishes it was just up to the government so no one would blame him. And, the, and, and people in the government also want it to be up into the government. Thankfully, we have this First Amendment that says it really should, ought not to be up to the government, but who knows how long that holds up if, if they're not going to fight back 
and everyone is just complaining all the time about how bad these companies are, you're going to get what you want, people. They're going to they're going to be broken up or destroyed or diminished, and then you can go back to just having you know the New York Times tell you what to think, and no one's going to like that because it sucks. The New York Times will never publish an op-ed by a Republican senator again after the whole Tom Cotton thing. That's the amount of that's the amount of that's the level of censorship you have in the mainstream media. So they, compare that to what you have on social media where, you know, every now and then they take down some Nazi person and maybe they take down someone who's not quite a Nazi and it's bad. And, and you know, we call it out, but it's just so much better. And they don't they can't see that as very frustrating. Doesn't uh, also Zuckerberg at all have a vested interest in saying, yeah, regulate us because I know that you're going to create onerous requirements that are going to blunt anyone who would ever have the idea of starting up to compete with us. We can comply. Give us all the compliance costs. We got the money. Yep, that's that's totally what they're doing. So Facebook has signaled its openness. They, they've been running ads about it to reforming Section 230. Mm-hmm. And Twitter does not want reforms to Section 230 because Twitter is the smaller main competitor. And Facebook employs thousands more content moderators than Twitter does. So if you make the platforms do more content moderation, this could be like the the Walmart act supports minimum wage scenario because it, right. it all of their competitors can't pay minimum wage and it drives them out of business. In the end, it's beneficial for the biggest guy. Also, whatever kind of, you know, Josh Hawley and others have talked about, well, maybe there'd be a panel appointed approved by the senator, maybe a panel of senators who would decide re- whether your 230 protection renews because and we decide if you are politically neutral. This would entail like lobbying and you know, knowing who the specific bureaucrats are, it, it would entail a, a great deal of insider knowledge that obviously Facebook would be best positioned to navigate, like much better positioned to navigate because there's been a revolving door between between staff of Democratic and Republican uh, lawmakers and employees of Facebook. I just want to say before we lose the thread that Robbie briefly mentioned the Covington case in passing. It's Robbie from whom you know that the Covington case is bullshit. It was his reporting, which um, all credit to Robbie, but also just negative credit to the world. Because it was like 36 hours later, he didn't do anything special. He just actually watched the video. I did not do anything special. I just watched the additional footage that was available. Yeah, and it totally changed the, the picture. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, did he pay, now, did he pay I remember. Anyone? I remember yeah. that day. I remember Robbie watching. Well, watching the same things in real time. I don't even. We may have even had some sort of exchange that day um, in, in DM or something. I but think it we was did. Just, it was very odd the way that this story was just kind of gaining all of this steam, and there was additional context that was completely available. It was there online, and if you watched it. It made it a lot more difficult to buy into right. the narrative that this these kids were monsters and that this this child deserved to be punched in the face. Well, and this actually shows you, again, the duality of social media, because social media has in some ways made this problem worse. The sort of cancel the, the ability to cancel people is 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 stronger because of social media. When I was a kid. I'm sure I said really and di- said and did offensive bad things because I was a teenager and every person who has ever lived who has has done things they regret as a young person but I and and you guys are lucky that we finished our adolescence before the era where everything you said or wrote 
exists forever because there's a video of it or it was in a text <laughs> or a snap or something. It, in, it's in out fa- there. In fairness, you're from Michigan, so what you did was probably racist. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we well, you know, now know that, that pretty much everything and, is racist. So, of course, but that's honestly, true. I mean, I, I'll answer that question honestly. People have said to me, well, what, what you're saying, you said openly racist stuff when you were a kid. I don't think so, but I'm sure I said homophobic things. Oh, I mean, uh, it I, was not, I definitely it, like did. everything yeah. that's gay. That's like, that was totally just. So I, I, I probably there are other offensive things I said that are not relevant to me. So everyone, but everyone who wants to get you on that, okay, if you could play, if you could do that Black Mirror episode where you rewind everything, you you would be. I trust me, you would. You did not live a a a, 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 a sainted life your entire life. That's just true of everyone. We played so a social game, media we has made that worse. In, in the streets of Long Beach called uh, smear the queer. Uh, it never occurred to us that there might be any negative. A connotation towards any group. Horrible. It was called smear yeah. the queer. Right, because yeah, because good. gay people are not a group to you. Wow. Right. Unbelievable. Unbelievable that you still didn't believe that, sir. Queer matter. In fairness, I was usually the queer and I kicked right, everyone's right. ass. So let's just uh, <laughs> to be clear. <laughs> um, I'm wondering where to take the conversation because I want to talk about the, the Facebook stuff, but I'm also interested in this broader conversation about the political ramifications for Facebook of doing content moderation. I think it's correct that Facebook is well-served by being in a well-regulated environment. And by well, I don't mean appropriately. I mean, very (laughs) regulated environment. It makes it harder for their competitors. They can actually live up to the costs of trying to, to operate in a regulated environment. But if they were to get rid of Section 230, or create some new standard that says you only get Section 230 protection if you aren't moderating content or moderating content in this way. It's actually really hard for me to imagine what that world looks like. In one respect, I can imagine a regime that just doesn't work. And all of the places where you imagine people um, going, like the establishment social media properties, just become outmoded and are outcompeted by new upstarts that do things the old way and people just kind of continue to go to these smaller places. Um, But in another respect, I could also see the stultification of the entire industry as a result of it being poorly regulated. So I should, maybe I should explain what 230 is in case listeners don't. So, so section 230 is, is, (laughs) is the federal statute that grants liability protection to online social media platforms. What that means is if someone posts a comment, if they defame you, a defamatory comment, you want to sue that person because they said something that was maliciously false about you. You can sue that person. You cannot sue Facebook. Their speech is not treated as Facebook speech. And also that applies right to the New York Times comment section. Applies yes. to everything. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's Reviews online on platforms. Amazon. It's from Absolutely. 1996. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And and the point, the, so the point of that, that stems from court decisions where, you know, in the early Wild Wild West days of the Internet of forums, there was like one forum that wasn't moderating anything. And thus there was death threats and pornography and et cetera. And like that wasn't good. We all want. So we all want a certain level of moderation, even the most per, the person say, no, I, they should just let everything on there. Then you actually ask them what they mean by that. Well, they say, well, no, I don't I don't want them to you know, harass my family members with, you know, pictures of them burning inside Holocaust concentration camps. Okay, well, then you want some moderation. Uh, Everybody wants some moderation. But uh, there was another forum that had done, that had had 
purged itself of that kind of content, and then it got sued for defamation, and they said, well, we're not, we didn't publish the defamation, this user did. And the court said, well, I guess, but you're kind of like a publisher, because you do make some decisions about what gets to be on this platform, so aren't you like uh, like Simon & Schuster or something, the publisher of my book? Like, they're, they're on the hook. If, you can, if something defamatory is in my book, you can sue them as well. You, in Reason Magazine, if someone writes... Uh, if, if a staff member of Reason published something defamatory, you could sue uh, Reason as well. I don't advise it, of course, but you could. Uh, so Section 230 arose to solve that problem, that we actually want the platforms to do some moderation. We don't want them to refuse to do any moderation whatsoever out of a fear that they will then be held liable. They will be treated as a publisher. So that's what Section 230 exists to do, to say, nope, do moderation if you want, Use at your dis- discretion, set your own policies, and no matter what those policies are, the platform is not is not liable, is not treated as the speaker, and that so that's what has allowed this environment where people can post at will, generally without prior approval, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. You can upload YouTube videos, etc. They don't have to approve them ahead of time because they can't be sued for them. That's a ve- that's a really good thing. Mm-hmm. And something that, again, would be suicidally stupid for people to try to to harm or compromise. But people have been talking openly and explicitly about getting rid of Section 230, taking this protection away. And, and the two ways in which they do it is, one, they falsely suggest that only social media companies have Section 230 protection. And it is some sort of gift that's been given to them, special treatment that they receive that no one else receives. And it makes it completely unfair or they suggest that it was given to them so that they could be impartial and right. explicitly and it, which it was not <laughs> so that they can do moderation and it, right. it's worth it's worth directing people to the actual contents of section 230 because we talk about it and it sounds like this hyper technical thing it must be this massive voluminous piece of legislation but i mean we're talking about like 20 odd 26 words actually to be precise no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider i.e matt welch leaving a review on amazon I've never heard anyone give me any kind of specific recommendation for how Section 230 might operate that wouldn't be onerous and wouldn't be potentially detrimental to the way that the Internet operates, including some of the the rather simple sounding ideas like, oh, well, you can only give Section 230 protection to any website that isn't offering, uh, say, the same standard that the government would have to with respect to the First Amendment. If everyone could just sue Facebook because Facebook decided to regulate some posts that they put up there and, and all the frivolous legislation that would be filed against a company like Facebook, I mean, it would just be completely untenable. There's an anecdote in my book, actually, of Twitter citing Section 230 in a, in a lawsuit as a reason they could keep Donald Trump's content on the site before, obviously, before he they, they got rid of him at the very end. But Section 230, again, so Donald Trump has said, let's get rid of Section 230. He's tweeted that. He thinks it's a bad thing. But Section 230 was part of Twitter's defense of its ability to leave his awful content up on their site. So uh, to some degree, I get why Elizabeth Warren, why Joe Biden, why the left, or n- not the, you know, the hard left, but the you're sort of pro- normie progressive type people, they want to get rid of Section 230 because they just want to destroy these large profitable companies. And also they don't like that these companies can allow speech they disagree with to exist on these platforms. And getting rid of Section 230 would be a great way to eliminate 
tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of speech. And they don't worry about their own speech because their speech, uh, you know, the, the elites of society think their speech is acceptable. They're not going to get in too much trouble for that. The last left standing speech will be their speech. So it kind of makes tactical sense for them. I, I still, I, I, now I think they're, the reason they're so freaked out about so many sp- people speaking and all that is wrong. But their, their pure tactical approach, let's eliminate the speech of everyone we disagree with. Okay, this is how we would go about doing it. Again, why on earth so many Republicans or conservatives have convinced themselves to go along with this is just, I, I actually can't answer that question. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. There's a common um, complaint about Facebook in particular is that um, uh, Facebook... This is a complaint now uh, from Democrats uh, in 2016. Facebook tipped the election towards Donald Trump. And then there's another complaint um, specifically from Republicans uh, in 2020. Uh, Facebook tipped the election uh, towards Joe Biden. What is your, and there are listeners to this podcast, I know because we get emails from them, mm-hmm. um, who believe one or, or, or uh, I think one believes both. But most people believe one, <laughs> one, uh, which I, you know, respect, mad respect for that. Uh, but like most people believe one or or the other of those. What is your Robbie uh, uh, take on that critique? And and is either one of those positions more substantive? Yeah. No, they're both completely without merit. So oh, it's narrowly completely. true. Completely, that it's narrowly true that that since Facebook is a place where people can advocate for political outcomes and, and politicians spend money in advertising to support political outcomes, it is in some sense true that they did ha- play some role in who won the election both times in the way that any media company, any outlet that, that included any advocacy whatsoever is in some indirect way. It's like saying Reason Magazine is responsible for the outcome. I don't know, maybe, maybe there are some listeners time. who think our, yeah. our lack of fealty to Trump is uh, and uh, we voted for George o- J- uh, Joe Jorgensen, and that's why Biden won. It's kind of like that. But I will, I will say that, you know, so just I ask people to compare it to other things, like C- CNN and Fox News are 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 one twenty four hour a day um, uh, advertisements for or against Donald Trump. Your your favorite cable news channel, your favorite radio program is is is. Ju- is constantly lobbying still for which one is candidate. Really weird. So probably Super that in office. it's weird to think that didn't have an effect. I mean, e- even if we could specifically go to like the 2016 election, right? The kind of voter that that you know, your your working white class Michigan, Pennsylvania person. You're saying this is the person who's like very online and was fooled by some Russian campaign. No, there's a person who listens to Rush Limbaugh. And they used to be a union guy, and now Trump is the person who fits this. Like, it, it, it's sort of a conspiracy theory to say it, it, it's it's all, and it's also just social media is the newest thing, so we have to blame the newest thing. I think the traditional, uh, the the everything else the candidates do to help get elect themselves elected. I mean, the New York Times endorses candidates, newspapers endorse candidates. Mark Zuckerberg didn't endorse a candidate. <laughs> like, in, is that interference in the election? It's just so weird to say, yeah, this. What they were, what this was, what they were doing is is totally beyond the pale, and that's the thing. I don't. It doesn't make any sense to me. The the, the newer one, the twenty twenty one, is I guess that they the Hunter, the Hunter Biden, Biden story. Yeah. yeah, but my response to that is, I think probably that ended up giving that story more attention, not less. Undoubtedly, because then there yeah. was all this. You're right. You you there was a period of time where you could not share 
that story. Literally, you could not tweet the link or whatever on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But there was still, you could still talk about the story. And you could talk about the, the, the fact that they were trying to stop you from seeing the story. Right. So you still had tons and tons of coverage of the story on the sites. Again, I say compared to what? Let's say we don't have social media. We just have the mainstream news. They're just never going to report this story. You just wouldn't have heard about this story. There would have been no story to censor. It would have not been written about. So the, the, the fact that social media exists and they took some clumsy effort to muffle it, but you still ended up hearing about it. it I think it was probably an example of the Streisand effect. Um, I, 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 no, I don't believe, I, I really roll my eyes whenever someone says, yeah, you know, if more people had known about Hunter Biden, that was really, that was really going to be it. And, and Trump was cruising to reelection. I, I find that very doubtful. And, and also I think probably more people did know about Hunter Biden because of the steps social media took to amplify it. Robbie, one question that stands out to me and is, is worth addressing is just the question of like the vulnerability of the internet broadly to censorship. Um, certainly the case that you've got, you know, a handful of operators that can do something like say, take parlor offline and make it unavailable to people at the moment when it is becoming, it has become actually like the most downloaded piece of software in the app stores for both Android and Apple. At the same time that happens, they just take it off and say, no, 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 you can't have this. This is unacceptable. We've decided. Um, and in much the same way, and, and perhaps in a broader sense, um, uh, I, I think I mentioned Vivek's book, Woke Inc., the, the last time we talked to um, Antonio as well. Um, there's this anecdote in there about him talking to a VC who is so terrified that they refuse to be identified in the context of the book. But they they explained to him, I believe the, the phrase that he uses in the book is with striking clarity that there are just 50 pieces of infrastructure that could be hijacked or modified in some way that enable governments to be able to censor whole swaths of the internet. And it gives one a sense of just how vulnerable they are to a future where a few people are able to control what they are allowed to see and not allowed to see. And in some respects, I think that is a very legitimate kind of concern for one to have. What you do in response to that, though, um, it, it seems to me could be a really good idea or a really bad idea. Um, I wonder if this is something that you get into in the book or something you've given a lot of thought to and, and how you address those concerns. Well, the way I solve a lot of issues that that are along the lines of well, what happens if, you know, you have the government's telling them what to do or the government is, well, then the government should just not do that. That's the thing we have control over, what the government does. We don't have that much control over what what policies private companies have. I mean, we literally, even if we want to have that control, we don't be, to some to a great degree because of our constitutional protections. But we do have a lot of control over what the government does or ideally should under again under our constitutional system. So we could just tell the government or we, we should vote for a government that is does not have a massive surveillance state, that does not order firms to do things, that, that is not like China. What China has is bad. So I just I I whenever people say, what about the collusion of big tech and big government? I say, well, I'm yes, I'm for eliminating big government. That is the area where we as citizens in a country, that's the thing we're supposed to be able to tweak, not really the tech companies. And then also, uh, so, but again, that's not to say that everything they do is right and should be defended. What they did to Parler is very, is very skeptical, uh, very suspicious. I don't like it. Doesn't sit right with me. There are the ostensible reason that there was a, like a lot of violence on Parler uh, was absolutely true. A lot of violence being organized. 
absolutely true, but also true on Facebook, and they didn't take Facebook out of the App Store. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it was probably also flooded, uh, flooded with... Um, I read an interview with the with the parlor guy in the Washington Post where he didn't seem to understand that they they are still like required to to find and take down child pornography. Um, I, I think he didn't quite have a great example uh, understanding of that there are like requirements on what there there are. You can't again. You can't just have a no. Nope, this is an unmoderated platform that doesn't work. It's like a totally un- <laughs> unmoderated platform is not. Uh, but that said, I, I I don't like what they did, but there really isn't a, this is probably speaks to your, the economic concerns you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I usually try to argue people out of these by just saying that you're kind of just screwed here because there's not a good rationale under existing, so existing antitrust law proceeds from the assumption that there is a harm to the consumer we need to prevent that let's say one big company, they become a monopoly and they, they have access to some good, some essential good. And, and what they're going to do with their monopoly now is they're going to raise, raise the price of it and hurt the consumer. That's not really what, that's not really what's going on with social media companies, right? They're not, because the, 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 the product is, the service is free. You don't pay for Facebook. You don't right. pay for any of these things. And this, this is They're why people selling... say we need a new, a new kind of antitrust, a new paradigm. Well, you know, those people are not wrong. If you're operating from the from the position that we should do something about social media, you right. do need a new, you, you need a new set of laws to else. grapple with them. Right? Yeah, because the existing antitrust law d- is not going to cut it. It's yeah, not which is very different than saying problem. antitrust has failed, which is a, a, a cue and cry that I hear in a number of different places. Oh my God, we, we antitrust antitrust failed. Well, no, antitrust is not built. For this particular it's problem not. that you imagine exists, but but similarly, it, it seems like there is a sense in which, and and I think I'm going to try to paraphrase something I saw um, Balaji say before, who's been a guest on the podcast in the past, but that there is a sense in which there is a certain kind of person who imagines that they can you know regulate the world in order to kind of recapture some lost past where only the right kind of people had the ability to talk online and the wrong kind of people simply couldn't or they can control the future so that certain kinds of dangerous things and dangerous tech can emerge. Um, or they're, they're trying to build their way out of a potential problem that they face. And, and certainly when I think about like the, the limitations that we see, or at least the vulnerabilities that we have to say the coordinated action as of a bunch of tech companies, if there are several large actors who have the capacity, if they are kind of politically aligned to dictate what you can and can't see, well, how can we innovate around that? There, there are ways. Um, certainly, like a lot of the stuff that's happening on the blockchain, like could be mm-hmm. an alternative to that. Um, certainly, a lot of the stuff that we've seen with cryptography more broadly and anonymity online all offer avenues towards that. And generally speaking, I can imagine innovative approaches to trying to get around some of these things, um, but. Relatedly, it's also the case that in as much as you can find examples of kind of a parlor or a Hunter Biden um, story that is getting torpedoed, it's also the case that these companies are in fact competing with, with each other like pretty fiercely and finding opportunities to try and denigrate one another in spots where they imagine they're vulnerable. And I, I it's hard for me to get nearly as excited about a lot of these things as as other people, given the various other kinds of panics where we've seen these things just not materialize and become the kind of problems that people imagine from Nokia to Microsoft to IBM. All of these companies were imagined to be 
behemoths with incalculable amounts of power who would never be supplanted ever. And all of them were in fact supplanted. And it's hard to imagine that Facebook, Google at all, for all of the influence that they have today, like won't find themselves in a very similar circumstance at some point. Yeah, in the I, absolutely. Especially because right now they're in a power, like Google's in a powerful place because it's, I guess maybe it's closer to meeting the traditional definition of monopoly. That's mostly because everybody loves its search engine. Right. No one wants to use a different search engine. It's the, I think part of the sort of investigation, the government's investigation to them, the big complaint was that Google's the default search engine for Apple products. Mm -hmm. But if it wasn't the default search engine, like 99% of people who buy Apple products would be like, where's the Google? How do I, how do I put Google on my phone? Right. They, they, this is consumer choice. This is, this is, so you, the government want to get between people and a service they love that they mostly love. That's, that's what, that's what people who want some kind of intervention here are essentially saying that you think you know better than, than, than what millions of people have, have manifestly demonstrated by their preferences that they want. <laughs> mm-hmm. And as I'm, as I'm sure, you know, Apple might be charging Google like $15 billion to maintain their default status in iOS going forward. Yeah. What if, um, what if, so what if the government said, yeah, you can't do that. Then, uh, then Google would find out that it doesn't even have to pay that because, <laughs> because all the users will use it anyway, even if it's not the default. I, I think actually, I, I think the government, uh, no, truly, th- there could be a perverse way under that kind of thing where they would end up helping Google because everybody wants it to be Google search engine, whether they pay for it to be the default one or not. Yeah. Robbie, one of the reasons that people hate your guts is um, that you've been writing for the last... I don't know how many years, let's say five, about what is sort of euphemistically at this point called cancel culture, right? Like uh, uh, usually cases that are in the private sphere, sometimes on like uh, public universities or whatever, in which the culture of free speech is shown to have a lack of respect for due process and like thinking things through. Um, And you go in there and you criticize uh, hasty decisions that are made in the heat of the moment with social media pylons. There are some people who push back and say that you or the people who are interested in this are exaggerating this because it's happening on college campuses and you hate college campuses or hate left-wing people, um, or that there isn't really anything as a culture of free speech, which is a interesting argument um, to have. Uh, but I would actually, uh, it's a, a ton of things that exist in that uh, setup but I would ask you to marry that actually um, with the, our discussion of social media um, in the following way, which is just that um, operating on a theory more and more that social media in particular, but also politics generally, um, is a reflection of us, not the three of us and mm-hmm. the you know missing Moynihan uh, ghost chair over here, um, but like... Uh, social media is literally everyone who's participating in social media. And one of the reasons why we hate it so much or people profess who are high, like uh, paying attention too much online, people uh, profess to hate it so much because they kind of hate, (laughs) hate people. And just in general, when you see the results of what people do and what they read and what they share, and what they talk about, it's gross. It doesn't feel right. Um, So the, your, critique of the culture of free speech and how it goes wrong 
in the private sphere. How does that meld up with your sort of defense of social media companies, at least from regulation, um, given that they are they are kind of what is happening in the private sphere, but on a bigger platform? I think that, well, like I said earlier, th- th- there are some downsides of social media. And one is that a lot of uh, embarrassing moments that would have been private and forgotten are now public for all to see. And all, a, a lot of these are just, they take on a, a, a racial or a political lens because everything now has to be slotted into a team blue or team red mentality. But a lot of these incidents, when you see you know, viral videos of people screaming at each other in a parking lot, and then eventually someone says something sexist or racist or homophobic or coded to be then, be, this is going to become a political thing. This is going to be talked about on cable news now. Um, but it's sort of just a negative interaction between two human beings, which is something that happens to everyone all the time and has always happened. I almost yelled at um, a, 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 a woman yelled at me in the airport uh, bar. Of course, I was in the bar, obviously. Uh, because I was talking too loud on my phone because I couldn't really hear myself. And uh, I almost got mad and yelled back. We could have had a little thing. Um, I, that happens sometimes. And then, did you, but, did you go, fuck Jacob Greer? He's right about everything, <laughs> but not that. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I should have said. And then, yeah, and then I would be a whole thing. You should have taken but, out your uh, cell phone, started recording her, and yeah, asked her why right. she I should have said, did you, you just tell me to go back hood. to my hood? Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. That's what you should have said. Did you just tell me? <laughs> so a lot of that, uh, but of course, that'll, that'll since a lot her. of those videos have been misleading, the, also then social media has been the cure when people then go look for additional information or or hunt down the person who did it. Right. So it's like, <laughs> it's a tool that can be used in both directions. But I think to get to your broader, you know, free speech is just is just messy um, it, 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 we have more content to consume, more conversations to have, and some of it is really ugly and is not pleasant and is, it's not good. Um, I, I think, but you're right that it is, it's just us. It's just amplifying what, what we think and how we behave. There would be no cancel mob without a mob. It's it, the technology makes it easier to do or facilitates it, but it's still people doing it. There's still human beings behind every one of those 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 still somebody's wielding a pitchfork the pitchfork doesn't wield itself um and these are journalists sometimes we're talking about these are mm-hmm. terrible norms of journalism that need to be revisited you don't uh, i i have become over time more cognizant of the fact that if i name someone in a story i might be inviting them to be harassed or to never get a job again if i'm saying something negative about them so is this a very and and that shouldn't stop you from criticizing people who deserve to be criticized but maybe if this was just a college activist who i'm making fun of or who you know did something bad or embarrassing maybe i don't have to name them because it's not really important who they are now if it's an administrator of the college maybe they need to be called out maybe it's the president of the club something like that but i i'm more careful about shielding people and so i don't like invite their lives to be destroyed and that is something the media should do more of now that now that that name will always be Googleable uh, associated with the thing you're doing. I think there should be, in, in some ways, like a greater or, or just more discretion. Don't there's no reason to write about these kinds of things. Journalists need to be less um, less reliant on social media. That, that that's their problem. That's bad. That's just bad journalism. That's them just doing a shitty job and they should stop doing it. They should stop doing the. The whole thing where when you're inter- you interview some interesting new person and then you like search Twitter to see if they've ever said something racist when they were 14. Like <laughs> there is no reason you have to do that. You can I, 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 journalists 
generally don't have like a journalism education for good. But if you did, there should be a class about how you don't don't do that. Just don't do that. It's not important. Don't do that. So it's us. Especially we can be better Robbie, human beings. Do not search whether Robbie was being racist in Michigan <laughs> when he was 14, because I'm oh sure God. that he was not. I don't think you're I don't think you're going to find anything. But again, that's just because I just I just made it. I think I had a cell. I had a cell phone, but no, there's no social media on the phone until until I get to college. Well, I, I want to complete just this. Made it. I want to complete this turn before we get out of here, um, because uh, it would be a, a, a grave injustice if we did not talk about uh, Merrick Garland and this memo that yeah. came out this week in which the FBI suggested that there might be a problem with all of the political arguments and craziness that has been taking place at various school board meetings across the country where um, there have been these intense debates over critical race theory, whatever that means. We're not going to define it here. We're not going to tell you whether or not it exists or is actually being taught in schools. All we want to talk about here is whether or not there is any general concern amongst the assembled insightful persons. And, and I'll go first, um, not, not because my perspective is the most insightful, but I'm confident I'm right. Uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I saw this memorandum, and, and I must say that my libertarian spidey senses started to tingle, because anytime I see something that suggests to me that federal agents are taking a, a, a stance on something that suggests that they will have a closer proximity to some sort of active cultural conflict, cultural political conflict in the, in the country, like this concerns me. And I want to, I want to understand what the hell is being said here. And the memo opens up by saying that political discourse is important and free speech is important. It then goes on to say that there is some increased concern because of a number of threats that have been made. It doesn't quantify this, but it does suggest that there is a, a significant trend, something that is kind of national in scope, and that in order to achieve the goal of protecting teachers and other school officials who have found themselves threatened in different contexts in these school board meetings or because of people who are animated by concern of a critical race theory, that the FBI is launching an initiative to try and get involved in these situations. And it does appear that all of this is in response to people who were asking the Biden administration to take some sort of action, perhaps even to, to invoke something like the Patriot Act to protect the various citizens who are going about their job of of trying to educate students and indoctrinate them in a cult. Excuse me, I didn't say that. Bad, I didn't mean to say bad, that. Bad, sorry, bad. sorry, it took it too far. But in either case, like, I'm concerned about that. But at the same time, there is some sort of precedent for this in the relatively recent past, that during the summer of 2020, we did see kind of official proclamations from the Justice Department or the FBI explicitly saying, hey, in the midst of these protests, we are seeing some um, increased uh, activity with respect to violence and perhaps even, you know, uh, some some particular organizations. These are things that we need to scrutinize and we're paying close attention to. But we also recognize the right to protest. That said, there were at the time and perhaps even are now some disturbing um, revelations about the level of surveillance that was happening in certain cases and whether or not um, and there's always going to be questions about whether or not that stuff is politically motivated. But all in all, 
what it doesn't seem to merit, this latest memorandum, is what I've seen in many, many corners of the conservative political ecosystem, is this overwrought, oh my God, Biden just sicked the FBI on parents who are concerned about critical race theory. This is completely unacceptable. This is insane. Um, I'm not sure if it rises to that level. And while I appreciate the need for concern, it seems to me that there are definitely things that rise to that level, but this probably isn't one of them. I wonder if if you gentlemen think I'm missing the mark here, if I'm going to have my serious civil libertarian um, card taken away from me because I'm insufficiently animated by a memorandum that's materialized. But from what I can tell, like no other indication whatsoever that the federal government is getting involved actively in policing what's happening in school board meetings across the country? I, I would say it was, but it was wrong. It, it was wrong to bring the FBI into this conversation because there's no evidence that I've seen whatsoever that there's a significant, uh, all I, what I've seen from those videos, what I've heard from these stories, there's a lot of um, sentiment being expressed, sometime, mm-hmm. sometimes not politely. There's a lot of anger at these meetings I think a lot of it is justified. I, I think some of it is not, and it's not. It's not necessarily taking the right form. But I, I, there's been nothing presented to say that there's some, some rash of violent incidents or threats or things that we need to, to get the FBI involved. Just the the police, the police should be able to handle if there are actual cases of of parents making legitimate threats of violence. I, I, it's, it's not, and, and the, 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 what prompted this, the national, the school associations board had written some letter saying that mm-hmm. basically we, you know, this could be domestic terrorism. This right. could be a hate crime. You yeah. know, we're just asking it's, questions it, here. It's not. And right. And I, so I think you're right to say, you know, let's hit pause because there's no evidence the FBI is actually doing or going to do anything, but I, I think it was wrong to invoke them. And also yeah, my you know you mentioned like the protests of last year, and I don't I don't think my civil libertarian credentials can be revoked, but I don't like when windows get smashed and things get set on fire. Yeah, I think people who do that That's should racist. be arrested. That's racist. Yeah, I totally maybe I totally think those people should be arrested. I live in yeah, D.C. In and when the left came through, the the racial justice protesters came through. They smashed every window. Everybody had to board up. It was in the middle of the pandemic. They ha- they harassed people who who the the few people who were daring to eat dinner in in the small outdoor area they were allowed. It was awful, and I did want those people like arrested for that. They weren't. And then and then just to show my consistency, then the right came to town and they smashed all the windows. <laughs> and the police didn't do anything about that either. <laughs> well, they were very specific about the windows they were going to smash in that particular day. It was a, it was a specific the darkest set of day windows. in American history. The, the day we almost lost the country, according to Matt Welch. It, it was a pretty bad day, honestly. I was there. For, I, I I covered it. I live right by the Capitol. And immediately after, I'm like, and then there was a, I, I live close enough to the Capitol that like my street was closed and there were armed guards on it. Uh, it's Klobuchar, Amy Klobuchar lives in my building. I'm moving, so I'm not going to be her neighbor for much longer. But, but I was thinking like, okay, it's a pandemic. Everything is closed by order of the government. Everything is boarded up because the left tried to smash all the windows. And now there's spiked fences around the Capitol because the right tried to break into the Capitol. They succeeded. And there's armed guards outside my apartment. How much more of a dystopia could this possibly be? And all you people really suck for making this worse. Yeah, that well, was my overriding thought. Robbie, like, you I know will, what? 
screw you people. Let me remind you where have I, I've been telling you to move to for quite some time now. New York. I'm not, not going to New York. You. I, I made it to Navy Yard. I'm moving to a different with my <laughs> with my lovely wife, a huge fan of the show. Shout out to Carrie. We are moving to a new neighborhood in D.C. So, The thing that, that uh, troubles me, Camille, more than it apparently troubles you because you're getting soft uh, in, your, uh, <laughs> in your advancing age, is simply that there isn't really a lot of evidence at all that people are acting in a violent way. And this reminds me very much of the summer of 2009, but there was a big national freakout over the, as what E.J. Dion, the columnist of the Washington Post, described as the politics of the jackboot, mm-hmm. by which he was describing people who were angry, Tea Party people uh, mostly, going to constituent meetings in the summer of 2009 yes. when Congress critters are home and yelling loud with their voices and stuff uh, about Obamacare and about the bailouts um, Mm -hmm. and sort of the spike in government spending, but just like, hey, like you're bailing out the bankers, (laughs) not us, right? Yeah. Um, That's quaint. We we live in the the era of the the trillion dollar coin. We don't care about that sort of thing anymore. Dude, I mean, I was just writing about this today. Like, uh, you know, the stimulus bill was $787 billion. (laughs) Like, that's just like peanuts. That's weekend money. That peanuts. Is, that's nothing. Jesus yeah. Christ. Uh, but anyways, people were, were bent out of shape at the time about it. And they were and they're also mad about the, the circumstances around them. This is the first opportunity that a lot of constituents had to uh, confront or talk to or give feedback to their legislators. And it was widely portrayed at the time. And I wrote uh, uh, half a dozen pieces uh, uh, for reason at the time as like. Uh, politics is jackboot. This is like a uh, thuggish um, uh, intimidation. Um, there's one or two, you know, jackholes usually in Arizona. This is how it usually works. Who, who like showed up with uh, like carrying legal firearms on their side as they went into the place. Everyone freaked out and there wasn't any violence, just as there was mm-hmm. very almost no violence at Tea Party rallies themselves. Uh, Mary Catherine Ham, friend of all of ours, um, had a great piece, I believe, for the Weekly Standard. Um, at the end of 2009 or maybe 2010, that it went back and looked at every single one, did all the press coverage of every single one of the protests at the time, and went looking for actual acts of violence among the protesters. There just weren't any. But because the uh, existing system of people um, being confronted um, were so unused to this and were so kind of um, uh, aesthetically horrified by what they saw they greatly exaggerated the threat from it. I would say to you, as someone who has been um, uh, you know, very conversant with a lot of parents of public school kids over the last 18 months, which hasn't been the easiest of times, um, that the people who are newly excited about going to a school board meeting right now, some of them are going to be, as Moynihan has found out, outside agitators who don't even have skin in the game, don't have kids, just want to go scream about critical race theory. Okay, that exists. It's a category of people. How old is your son? I ain't got no kids. (laughs) Stop that critical race theory. But, like, there's an actual thing that's happening. There's a a slate of San Francisco school board members who have been or are in the process of being recalled. Mm -hmm. Um, There are people in New York City, in a lot of blue state, blue city strongholds, there are people who had to go face to face 
with their local public school systems because of the, the pandemic. And they're like, what? And they're doing the what on basically uh, COVID response overwhelmingly, but also some of the CRT stuff. Like if you look at it, and Camille, God knows, I forwarded you so many invites to my local kids' schools. Like, hey, do you want to talk about like uh, this? And Camille has threatened many times. Thankfully, he hasn't gone through it <laughs> to show up and and uh, get Eddie Murphy voice uh, with with the assembled and talk about various things. But like when you're face to face with the workaday assumptions, the emails that come immediately after the Atlanta massage parlor massacre saying, I'm sorry for all of our school children today about this anti-Asian violence, you know, like that would never gets corrected and whatnot. So like you're bombarded with it. The people who are coming out in response to this, they're not terrorists. Many cases, especially around me, they're liberals. <laughs> they're liberals who've been voting Democratic Party their entire lives. And they've been discombobulated by what's happened and what they've they've been forced to confront over the last 18 months, which is that like these systems that they weren't paying close attention to got captured by people who talk fucking weird about a lot of things. And so they're mad about it. They're they're pent up about it. Plus, they got the covid, uh, you know, just like, you know, the way that it affects all of us. But they're just not terrorists. So I get a little bit more worried maybe than what Camille was expressing earlier, because whenever you get the federal government, the FBI involved in this, um, then it seems not hard to imagine the infiltration comes next, right? Like mm -hmm. how many how many terrorist plots have been foiled that were never terrorist plots that were suggested by the FBI after 9-11 in some ship bag place in upstate New York and like some guy, I don't know, let's do the terrorism. My uh, The governor of my former home, <laughs> the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping is uh, increasingly looks like to me a FBI plot. <laughs> So this is I don't want that to happen hmm. to parents who are actually just exercising their normal kind of uh, ability to interact with the system. And it's instructive to see various people, including uh, what's this, Virginia governor or governor to be a whatever term uh, say that like, uh, oh, my it, it, isn't it horrible that parents want to exercise uh, control or at least input onto the, the system? I think there's a lot of parents who discovered that the system on autopilot was crazy and they're flooding into the system to treat them like criminals is a bad, bad, bad look. They're going to mask your children forever and tell them and tell your kids they're racist. <laughs> well, this is, but this is, hey, the, racist this is the kid, put your mask back on. That's the public school system. And it's terrible. It's just terrible. But this is, but this is the concern that I have. And, and we can map the trajectory of things, right? And say, in fact, let's just say I'll pick an arbitrary beginning. The woke apocalypse animates all of this insanity. And at some point, a lot of weird stuff starts happening in some schools. A claim is made on the right that it's happening in every single school. And from the left, it's like, no, 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 it's not happening in any schools, blah, 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 blah. But there's like an escalation of absurdities. And when the Biden administration or the FBI at the direction of behest of the Biden administration produces a memorandum that suggests that there is grave concern for like the safety of people in school board meetings, it's an absurdity and it ought to be called out as such. But when the response is editorials, the title of which is the criminalization of criticism of critical race theory, 
it's like, well, no, motherfucker. Like, that's not happening either. Like, it's all a fortress of absurd hysteria. And it just kind of builds upon one another. And it's not even a fortress. It's actually a vortex. It's a downward spiral. It is a black hole of cynical, hysterical nonsense. And the people who are spinning it cannot possibly believe it. Josh Hawley's performative response to this nonsense in Congress is laughable. That's not to say that there isn't a serious, thoughtful, articulate criticism of the Biden administration's political machinations around these issues. But it does suggest that the the response from reactionaries who are opportunistically suggesting that political dissent has been criminalized in this country, to, to quote myself from some moons ago, it is not as bad as you think, but it might be worse than you can imagine. It, it is not the case that people are going to be incarcerated for criticizing critical race theory today. It is certainly that? the case. It is certainly the case that we have an increasingly hysterical, in a bipartisan sense, culture war that is just dominating and infiltrating every single aspect of American life and politics and making everything less productive and less sober. And it is obscuring real conversations that we ought to be having. January 6th was terrible. There's something about the prosecution of people who were involved in January 6th that deserves more attention. And the degree to which those cases and prosecutions are being, have been politicized deserves more attention. And the hysterical way in which I think that story has been often being represented in the mainstream press deserves more attention. It's harder and harder to talk about that in an environment where everything is just hysterical hyperbole. It can't be that there is, you know, an excess of social justice concern in some school systems and that some school boards are doing too much or that some teachers are out of line. It has to be a dark conspiracy, the cathedral, the quickening that's taking place across America that's going to lead to the race war. And it's just, it's all a bit absurd. And that absurdity doesn't come without consequences. Robbie, tell Camille how he's getting soft. (laughs) <laughs> I agree. And, and just to use your example of the January 6th uh, stuff, and I hope from my earlier comments, it's clear that I do think it was very bad what happened. Bad. I absolutely yeah. blame Trump for it. He should have been impeached and removed from office. It's absolutely responsible that people who smashed things. I am for people who smash things going to jail. I am absolutely for that. Um, Unless it belongs said, to them. Being unless it belongs to them, unless they had consent from the from the smashed. Right, um, I like that. I want you to they, smash things at my direction. Right, but you know what? Prison is horrible, even for people who deserve it. It's horrible. It, it's I, I I remember reading a, there was a, a letter that one of the Proud Boys who's incarcerated wrote about because he's incarcerated because of of what happened on January sixth, and he's like, this is horrible. I can't. Um, I can't join even like the Nazi gang because they don't think I'm Nazi enough. I'm just like alone and miserable. And it's, and it's, it's both funny guy. and it's Feel terrible because even horrible people who are like the worst people, you start to feel these are, t- these are awful conditions and it, and it sucks. And I'm, I'm glad that the right, the MAGA right is paying more attention to it. It would be great if we could get them to care about the injustice concerning anyone other than Donald Trump and his his most loyal (laughs) sycophants. But then on the other, so again, I'm I'm pretty worked up about the January 6th stuff. Then you turn on CNN and they're like still covering it like today is January 7th. Now they now we're Mm -hmm. talking about like the very minor figures. Eastman is the villain of the week in the this is this obscure lawyer 
who had some theory for how Mike Pence could overturn the election results that didn't go anywhere, it didn't happen. Right, right. And now they're talking, now they're ha- doing CNN segment after segment about, could we get him disbarred or would he face, <laughs> could he face charges for proposing this theory? Or like, this guy doesn't, what are you doing? This doesn't, Trump is not president anymore. This story, this news cycle is over and they can't move on. They can't talk about anything else. And it's really, it, it speaks to the, the hysteria and the, the turning the dial up to 11 that you were just talking about. So that's why. So whenever the in both sides do it, it, it sucks to oh say God. both sides, this both sides, that. But they do. But it's true. So Absolutely. For every, for every controversy that the right takes a little too far or a lot too far. Um, you, Cuties was the one that made me just want to make any whatever break from conservative media that I possibly can. Like, Jesus, Christ, you guys are up here. I need you to be down here on this one. It's just not that important. Yeah. So for every time they do that, there's there's a there's one on the other side that it's like, man, you could really cover something else. Like, yeah. like the misdeeds of one of your primetime hosts, maybe. I don't know. So it's it's uh pretty bad this is why alternative media exists and yeah. you can find it on social media and it's a good thing to bring I mean, it if back. you are going to ban something to improve the quality of america banning cable news is probably a good idea um i'm, I'm remembering matt the the thing that moynihan had shot around the clip of malcolm nance on uh joy reed oh show my God. oh he's horrible lamenting, lamenting how terrible it is that the conservatives can get away with calling liberals um nazis while explicitly calling conservatives fascists in the same segment it's in the same (laughs) sentence it's so crazy you're right it is in the same sentence these people who are following the playbook of mussolini's black shirts so crazy don't watch donald trump when you're talking about the core hard solid face of extremism in the republican party he himself is just the windbag that is blowing that weather vane it is Steve Bannon who is actually organizing this. When he made his statement about being the shock troops, but he is not taking the Hitler brown shirt play, playbook. He is absolutely fascinated with Benito Mussolini and using the Camichinani, right? The uh, black shirts of the, uh, of, of Mussolini's, uh, fascist party. They know they're fascists. They know they are supporting, uh, white nationalist goals. They know that by using these terms in, in a way that their supporters approve of, they can actually get away with calling liberals Nazis. Uh, it's, it's absolutely fascinating. But when Bannon started a few years ago trying to build that gladiator school for the ultra-conservative right to create right-wing extremists, not foot soldiers, but political war fighters all over the world, he knew, he knew precisely that he was going to try to create a political base that would not just take power, would seize power and have armed support below it. This is very, very, very dangerous. If it was any other country, uh, we'd be putting out, you know, critical reports and preparing to do airstrikes. But this is the United States. You have a fascist base, which is arming themselves and thinking that at at first opportunity, they will seize power. Joy Reid uh, probably thinks classical liberal is a code word for Nazi. Like, she literally doesn't know what a classical liberal yeah, yeah. is. It's, the mean, segment ends with Joy, like, sort of not... Well, the clip, anyways, from the segment, which the, the readout tweets itself, has Joy kind of nodding in agreement, and it's an audible, mm-hmm, at the end of this tirade that Malcolm Nance goes on, which is completely unhinged. I, 
I wish there was a way to get all of these people together on a Elon Musk rocket ship and just send them to the moon and let them have <laughs> yeah. that shit for themselves because they deserve each other. But unfortunately, it, it just every day, and I don't know that this is true, but every day it feels like the the left and the right are able to drag more and more otherwise sane people towards their idiotic, destructive culture war. And I suppose we should probably pull the ripcord and get out of here. But I, I do have one closing thought that I want to leave people with. But before I do that, Matt, uh, do you have anything else on this topic? It's a topic that I've been kind of uh, hinting at for a while or, or like trying to explore myself. But so much of politics and so much of the machinery of it, the 501c3s and 501c4s, up to media, it's a way of trying to capitalize on the passions of people. I think so much more is consumer-driven in politics and also in media than we ever really like to admit. And so there are clever operators out there who identify that, understand that, try to tap into that in such a way to make a living or to do whatever, um, whether that is you have a hysterical media property and it could be on cable news, it could be just like a boutique newsletter thing or whatever, or you're like, hey, I'm going to pretend to run as a third party candidate. Here's my 501c3. That's really seriously going to be a third party. It's going to start anytime soon now. But meanwhile, we're getting a lot of donations. All these people are um, trying to tap into the same thing on some level, which is the consumer level sense of antipathy towards other people, political whipped up senses of uh, hysteria about what happens if the other people come close to getting in charge. <laughs> and so my 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 sermon to people in this is to don't be the consumer in that sense or the producer. It's hard to figure that out. I like that people are, are harvesting your hatred right now or your fear or your hysteria it's happening all around you there are also like donor side people who are like hey look there's a populist undercurrent over here i'm going to spend a lot of money identifying and trying to incentivize certain candidates who will try to tap into this you see this in the sphere that robbie and i work in which is political ideological magazines and journalism you see a lot of people like hmm? i think there's new money that says this <laughs> and their nose turns in a different direction. All that shit wouldn't exist, wouldn't be incentivized. I think people misidentify this as a top-down phenomenon. There is a top sometimes and there, that uh, makes available money, but all of it really wants to tap into the bottom-up stuff. So to the extent that which that there is bottom-up sense of apocalyptic hatred towards the other. And I wrote a piece today at Reason, and we're recording this on a Wednesday, about Biden saying this. Just like, you know, Republicans want to destroy the country. Just says this. <laughs> no one even cares anymore, right? <laughs> this is Biden, what the fuck is he even saying? But like, this is kind of normal. And Trump, of course, would say that all the time, too. And every time that I write something or tweet something about it, there are all these people like, well, they are. <laughs> it's like, yeah, every one of you who say, well, they are, you are giving Steve Bannon money. You are giving Malcolm Nance money. Congratulations, you poor motherfucker, right? Comparatively to Malcolm <laughs> Nance and Steve Bannon, who are not going to live small. Congratulations. Your hatred made those motherfuckers rich. 
So maybe think about a situation where you don't give them fucking money mm. and like think for yourself a little bit differently. That's my sermon. Go on. Well, I, I just wanted us to give some love to the bifurcated holiday that's coming up next week. Uh, Columbus <laughs> Day slash Indigenous <laughs> Peoples Day, which yeah. if there's any more potent example of the absurdity of our times, it is Columbus Day slash Indigenous Peoples Day, which I, I mean, obviously, this entire thing is about signaling your loyalty, your fealty to one tribe or the other. And there is a tangible, inescapable sense in which choosing either one of these days to be particularly excited about or outraged over is completely absurd and obviously stupid. All of it is fraudulent mythologizing about history. It's the noble savage versus the brave explorer and hero Columbus. I can dispense with both of these ridiculous tropes. I don't find any reason whatsoever to be excited about the pursuit of cosmic justice and moral clarity with respect to high holidays, the sanctification of the indigenous populations of the Americas as if they were not engaged in the kind of conventional savagery of the pre-modern epochs and the conventional savagery, quite frankly, of the co colonialists who came to this country and took land away from native peoples who had in many respects and in many places been involved in all manner of inhumane and awful treatment of one another throughout time and memorial. This, this is what we have done to each other. Um, that's not to say that they deserved it, that they deserve to lose anything, that we shouldn't be concerned about historic injustices and the gravity of those things. But I think it does suggest that maybe maybe there doesn't need to be some sort of historic competition to try to determine who is sufficiently pure and who has a right to a particular amount of celebration because of their achievements or on account of the injuries suffered or grievances. Maybe we can find some new moorings for this holiday, or we just surrender completely and make this America's National Culture War Day where we celebrate the various ways that we hate one another and the various ways we believe absurd things that aren't entirely true, but at a minimum give us some satisfaction because they piss off the other team because that's all we really want to do. Own the libs, own the cons, and never make any progress on anything. I didn't even know it was a holiday. Is it really? I'll, I'll, be, I'll be working. So <laughs> The good news, matter. Camille, is that in New York uh, City, the city that you fled like mm -hmm. a rat, yeah. Um, that it's not Columbus Day slash Indigenous Peoples Day, at least according to my local schools. It's just Indigenous in, Peoples Day. Infested with CRT. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, no, it's Italian American Heritage Day. Oh, is it? So, oh, so they've, they've gone Robbie, back to the true beginnings then. Who must have had at least some Italian in there. He looks like a goddamn Aryan. But his last name is Suave. <laughs> I'm, I'm Italian. I'm Italian and German and some other things. But yeah. It doesn't make even a bit of sense. But like, uh, do you feel uh, respected in New York, at least on October 11th, Robbie? What's that? Uh, what's the Sopranos meme? It's anti-Italian discrimination. <laughs> yeah. Do people know uh, that? I is that commonly care, but I don't. That Columbus yeah, Day I've was inspired that. by the Italians who wanted to have something that made them feel a part of the American tradition and somehow or another along the way they became too successful in that project and rather than this being a holiday to, to celebrate the, the the downtrodden italian 
it's become a celebration of the evil white colonizer who is ruling over America. That is, I mean, maybe not explicitly in chameleon words, but that's kind of understood in the in the hurly burly of uh, New York ethnic politics. Yeah, because I mean, this exists because of Italian Italians in New York. This Columbus Circle, and occasionally someone thinks that they're going to rename Columbus Circle. No, the motherfucker, you're not. <laughs> There's some things that you're going to do, and you're not going to do. Like you're not going to cross the uh, Italians, the Irish, the Jews, the Puerto Ricans, the blacks in New York. Like I don't know if I've left out a category. And I'm sorry if I did, uh, but like you can't. Like everyone has to be able to have some kind of uh, seat there. So like Italian American heritage, it's actually the it's the most accurate way of describing it. Like in the same way that St. Patrick's Day is an expression of not Ireland, but the diaspora. Like, hey, look, we made it. We're okay here. Cinco de Mayo is not a holiday in Mexico. For the most part, it's a holiday in America. Like, it's a sign that that the kids made it, and that's fine. Um, so I think it's a, it could be a positive step, Camille. My, uh, my grandparents were a mixed marriage because uh, it was a, a, an Italian and a Polish <laughs> Right. Wow. That's it. That's it. It's, 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 things change. Now those are all considered white people. But yeah, that's just not white people. The way it was. Now white people getting married people. to each other ain't interesting, Robbie. It ain't interesting. <laughs> Y'all just got married. That don't mean nothing. It's some critical race theory bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Well, Robbie, I thank you for, for coming on the podcast, for bringing uh, a little bit of sensibility and racism to, to, to bear. <laughs> Um, Michigan and flavor, though. I hope I hope we haven't gotten in, gotten you into too much trouble. If there's anything you want to distance yourself from, you can can take a couple of seconds to do that now on the way out. <laughs> I, I'm sure Speak I'll forever, have people on peace. Twitter yelling at me that I am uh, from both the right and left that I am not whatever I actually am. So, well, obviously people, you're not. Why do people dislike you, Robbie? Honestly, Josh Barrow thinks it's because I have a uniquely punchable face. He's positive. He wrote a column saying that do people really get heckled for not following the masking policies? I think the only one who's gotten truly heckled is Robbie Suave, and I think that's unique to just him. <laughs> so <laughs> Well I mean, there I'm, you go. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I did walk yeah. through the office here um, in my office in, in Mill Valley. I'm not wearing my mask, and I realized I wasn't do I wasn't doing it, and I, I didn't do it to be provocative. But once I discovered it, I did an extra lap around the office because fine. yes, yes. <laughs> I want to. I definitely down. do performative non-masking. <laughs> I, I I can't do I can't do the walk. Sorry, I know we got to go. I can't do the walk. When you walk into the the grab and go food yeah. place, yeah, yeah. and you're supposed to wear a mask in line, but everybody sit, sitting and eating is not wearing a mask. Uh-huh. And if they say like, if they say, "Oh, sir, you got to put on your mask," I just I turn around and walk the I yeah. walk do, right do out. Do you performatively cough and sniffle? Stupid. Do you do it's it? It's too stupid. No, I'm not going to do that. But I did. <laughs> I do roll my eyes. I do give them a come on. And I just, or I just say like, no, I, I, I can. I'm like allergic to masks and being an idiot, so I'm not going to do that. Face Sorry, can't have the chafing. Uh, would I you would, mask I, this face? I would not uh, mask the hair. Maybe just as a maneuver. Yeah. I would point out that where I'm sitting here in the Paloma Studios, Chinatown. Robbie was here. I forget exactly when. I want to say like in May or June or something. Like, remember he came out here and there had some reason people. Um, this is back when people in New York were still wearing masks. And a lot of listeners to the fifth column, when they hear 
especially me and Moynihan and now that, uh, but also Camille lives out in a weird place. Um, mm-hmm. Talk about like social masking, especially back then. They're like, what the fuck are you people even talking about? Like the, you're like, you don't understand that the rest of the country is working differently. It was Robbie. Mm. Robbie and I walked decisively from where I'm sitting to the subway and Robbie's striding confidently with his beautiful hair um, and just no <laughs> mask on. And I was like, um, okay, I cannot wear a mask because because Robbie's leading the way. So Robbie oh. brought me to mask freedom. And Good. This, Glad I, 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 I showed you your courage again, but it was always within you, Matt. Thank Ooh. you. <laughs> wow. Wow. I'm fine. I'm fine with that. I'm absolutely fine with that. Let, let's Good. learn always, even from assholes who are younger than you. <laughs> Punching out on an affirmative note. Robbie, thank you. We, we, Bye. We Thanks, Robbie. Thank you. Methods of attack. The Trojan horse.